0: Shocking new research has uncovered a miracle molecule that can repair memory and reverse Alzheimer's in just 21 days. Or so this message in my spam folder has just informed me. Ever since I first started researching cons, I've made a periodic habit of going through the fresh and highly grammatical invitations that come my way to see what the spammers are up to these days. This offer goes on to say, if you want to repair your memory, increase your focus and concentration, and protect yourself from Alzheimer's and dementia permanently. You have to see this. Well, that's a no-brainer, of course I do. Let me just click on this link. Actually, it's a pretty smart spam message as these things go. Who doesn't want to be smarter and more focused? Usually, the caring spammers would like to know if I'm in the market for a mail-order bride. A Russian bride, of course. They're also quite concerned about my penis size. And sometimes they have an amazing business opportunity. Some funds from a deposed African president or a rich relative or forgotten royalty are now tied up in court, or in a secret bank account, or, well, it doesn't matter. The point is, in return for help with legal fees, I'll be eligible for a huge reward. I'm guessing that now, a few decades into email scams, you know better than to click on these. The genre goes by many names, the Spanish prisoner swindle, the Nigerian prince scam, the 419 con, 419 being a statute of Nigerian law that covers fraud. You may be familiar with these schemes, but someone always falls for them. They still rake in hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars every year because this kind of con isn't new. Arguably, today's spammers don't hold a candle to what was once wrought by the mighty post office. I'm Maria Konnikova, and this is The Grift, stories of con artists and the lives they ruin. Today, I'm going to tell you about the greatest advance fee scam ever conducted.
1: I said, oh, look, I'm researching an American Depression-era con man, and I'm trying to kind of find documentation, and I was wondering if you might be able to point me in kind of various directions.
0: This is Los Angeles-based writer Richard Rayner.
1: Oh, yeah, well, what's the name of the con man? And I said, Oscar Hartzell. He said, you mean the Oscar Hartzell?
0: Raynor was researching a book he eventually published in 2002. It's called Drake's Fortune. And this moment when he found an archivist who actually knew the name Oscar Hartzell was the first real lead he'd gotten. Almost everyone has now forgotten about Oscar Hartzell, though he built somewhere in the neighborhood of 80,000 Americans out of millions of dollars. Even at the height of the Great Depression. Even after they should have known better. Hartzell was born in 1876 in southern Illinois. His childhood was rugged. He started life in a one-room log cabin.
1: He was the son of a farmer, not poor, not well-to-do. He always thought that he would be a farmer. He's a kind of ruddy-faced, chunky, Russell Crowe kind of looking guy. He made a marriage that was slightly socially advantageous. So he was able to buy a big farm in Iowa His father died in a gun accident. There was some insurance money, so Hartzell was able to buy an even bigger farm in Texas. He had a ranch in Texas, 16,000 acres, tens of thousands of cattle.
0: But Hartzell encountered a series of disasters. His cattle died from a disease that was ravaging herds at the time. He lost his inheritance and his farms. In 1908, he had to declare bankruptcy. By his mid-30s, Oscar Hartzell was generally humiliated. A failure. Now, let's stop for a second and consider that word, failure. It slides easily enough into a story about someone else. Other people fail all the time. But it's a very hard word for us to apply to ourselves. And for good reason. Calling yourself a failure feels like giving up, negative thinking, mentally unhealthy. We live in a culture where we're told constantly to think positive thoughts, believe in ourselves, shoot for the moon, but there's more to it. A fundamental element of human psychology is that we are in a way hardwired for optimism. When it comes to ourselves, our own capabilities and traits, we tend to see the world through a rosy prism. Over and over, studies find that we rate ourselves better than average on most good traits and below average on most bad ones, and we somehow consistently overestimate our likelihood of future success relative to the present. We think our lives are going to get better. We are, in a way, wired for hope. That hope comes through especially strongly when things in our lives are actually a mess and a mess that we've caused. A sort of magical distortion field seems necessary to shield us from the fact that we've made a poor decision. Oscar Hartzell got to know that distortion field very well in the years after his bankruptcy. Rather than admit that maybe money management wasn't his forte, he tried real estate in Iowa. He ran for county sheriff and lost. He kept losing money, but remained convinced the next great thing was just around the corner. And then, amazingly, it appeared, in the form of two enterprising strangers. They entered Harsall's life when he was back in Illinois in 1914, visiting his widowed mother. The strangers were selling shares in what they said was the long-lost estate of Sir Francis Drake. Drake was a famed Elizabethan explorer who plundered Spanish gold in the mid-1500s. That gold had itself been plundered from the natives of South and Central America, of course. Richard Rayner likes to imagine how Hartzell and his mother would have heard the pitch about Sir Francis.
1: You know who Sir Francis Drake was, right? He amassed an enormous fortune, rose from being nothing to being an extremely kind of prosperous, wealthy guy by virtue of his own guts and ambition and daring. When he died, he died intestate. There was no will. so. The British government took all of that money and it's been sitting in probate for hundreds of years, gathering compound interest. And there are lots of people who descended from Sir Francis Drake who actually have claim to that money that those bastards the British government have been sitting on for centuries. And why don't we go and get it?
0: All they need is a small contribution to help with legal expenses. It's what's called an inheritance scam, and its form is surely older than Francis Drake. The notion of a family fortune that's tied up in mysterious legal limbo, and anyone with the right last name can unlock the treasure chest by power of their DNA. The Drake scam had been circulating in England almost from the year of Drake's death. When it migrated to America, though, it acquired the shape of a classic advanced fee ploy, the good old Spanish prisoner newly turned English, a little bit down now for a lot later on. Every contribution would be noted, and every contributor rewarded with an astronomical return on investment, 500%, 5,000%. You didn't even have to be a Drake anymore. Just pitch in and get a share of the loot. You might even inherit part of the British city Plymouth or a piece of California. Why not? Sir Francis Drake had supposedly claimed the Pacific Coast for the crown, according to legend, which was almost the same as true. Oscar Hartzell heard this tale from two promoters, a lovely widow named Sudie Whittaker and her supposed attorney, Milo Lewis. It's possible Hartzell's mother had already invested. Whatever the circumstances, Hartzell was in, and not just as an investor. Soon, he began working with Lewis and Whitaker across the Midwest, where his gritty farmer's demeanor became a huge asset. Whitaker, with her regal bearing, would sweep into town and stay at the best hotel. Hartzell appeared as some kind of local yokel protector. He tried to keep the lady from telling everyone the secret she had. After all, if too many knew about this fortune, then the world would be after the money. Discretion was key, but it was too late. Soon everyone knew about Mrs. Whitaker's offer. Lewis, the attorney, offered the legal proof. The show came to Des Moines, Iowa, Hartzell's old stomping grounds, and Whitaker collected thousands of dollars. Not today's dollars, 1914 dollars. Richard Rayner thinks that in the early days, Hartzell did believe Whitaker and Lewis, that they actually had the key to a fortune abroad. After all, Rayner says, Hartzell was working for shares in the venture, not a salary.
1: Hartzell, in effect, at first starts working the scam, but in the kind of parlance of the con game, he's on the outside.
0: But then something happened that would change Hartzell's life. One investor sensed fraud, and Sudie Whittaker was arrested in Des Moines. Rather than stand trial, Whittaker decided to skip out on bail. For the UK. She invited Hartzell to go with them, and he agreed. London was hard at first on Hartzell. He seems to have worked as an overgrown errand boy for the two con artists. This was when he finally started to realize that Tenuous relationship between his benefactors and the truth. Here in Sir Francis Drake's homeland, it was a little more obvious that the fortune was an illusion. Lewis and Whitaker would go about finding props and forging documents to look like evidence for the claim, a family bible, even a tombstone. It was all a fake, but it allowed them to continue living large on Midwestern cash.
1: At some moment in the story, which is a kind of delicious moment, Hartzell realizes, hey, I don't have to take any more shit from these two, and I'm going to beat them at their own game.
0: And beat them he did with the unwitting help of the U.S. Postal Service. How The Mark became a con game innovator. That's coming up after the break. We're back with the saga of Oscar Hartzell and the Drake fortune. It's now the Roaring Twenties. The war has ended, and America is awash in money and illicit booze. It's a golden era for fraud. On the newfangled medium of radio, hucksters sell amazing miracle cures.
1: Men who have been told that the prostate gland is infected, or enlarged, or diseased in any ways should have something done about it before everlastingly too late. He's a man who's known as Dr. Prickly.
0: But old schemes are doing well, too. Drake's fortune chief among them. In London, Oscar Hartzell's patrons, Sudi Whitaker and Milo Lewis, continue to collect money from the Midwest, sending back the odd forged document to keep the masses satisfied. In truth, Lewis is living in style, cavorting with a different lady seemingly every week. Hartzell picks up a few English girls too, passing himself off as an American businessman. But part of him must sense he isn't facing the greatest of future prospects, living as he is on the scraps of a con, however lucrative. Then Hartzell catches a lucky break. In 1922, back in Illinois, Milo Lewis is disbarred for his fraudulent ways. This could spell an end to their Drake scheme, but Hartzell uses the development to make his move. He writes an urgent letter to investors back home.
1: So Milo Lewis is kind of disgraced, which is then the cue for Hartzell to be able to say, look, I've discovered that Whittaker and Lewis were crooks. Don't believe in them, believe in me.
0: Hartzell announces something important. While those fraudsters, Lewis and Whitaker, were stealing the hard-earned money of Midwestern farmers, he himself made an important discovery.
1: I have found out who the true heir to Drake's fortune is, and I'll tell you how I found the secret. You know, I went down to Devon, I went to the church where Drake prayed every Sunday. I went up into the attic, he's borrowing kind of like archeological discovery kind of stories that would have been popular in America around that time. And he finds the document.
0: Hartzell says a document he discovered in that church led him to the real heir to the Drake fortune. And that person would only work with him. There was still hope, a new chance of cracking the case at last. Hartzell travels back to Iowa for a brief visit and makes a proposition to the Drake crowd. If they don't want to lose more of their money, they will have to trust him alone. And of course, donate funds for him to carry on the fight. Hartzell even recruits two of his siblings to be his agents in America. It's a delicate moment. The farmers have gotten nothing yet for their investment. So does anyone smell a rat? Nope, the ploy works like magic. Lewis and Whittaker are, of course, furious, but in the end, there's nothing they can do. Hartzell has finessed a master turn much older than any of them.
1: The Elizabethan con men would talk about this moment in the long saga, the long narrative that any con game is. They talk about this moment called the misrule, which is where something goes wrong. And actually, if you're a clever con man, as opposed to kind of admitting defeat at that moment, you use it to your advantage.
0: In modern con language, this is the send, a moment when things turn south, but rather than admit it, you double down on the fraud. Thus begins what's got to be the best decade of Hartzell's adult life, when he becomes, as Rayner likes to put it, the master of misrule.
1: When you look at the American Express records for the early 1930s, he's then receiving as much as $12,000 a month, and that's Depression-era money.
0: Back in London, Hartzell lives in ever more grand apartments. He wears fancy suits. He takes elocution lessons. He smokes fine cigars. He dines at his own personal table at the Savoy and starts referring to himself as Baron Hartzell. His only job is hanging around the courts of London, acting as if he has important business to conduct. And then he spends a couple of hours writing letters back home. Rayner has seen the originals.
1: They're written in this sort of right-way sloping scrawl, and they're written with such sort of intensity, where he's announcing the details of his kind of moves in England, and... How it's kind of so close, we're so close, believe in me, keep this secret, whatever you hear about people telling you this might not be true, that's the government. They don't want you to have this money. Just go on believing in me and I will bring it all back for you.
0: Any event, any change of cabinet in England, any meetings with US officials, Hartzell writes the Drake fortune into it. He also blames those current events for his setbacks and delays. His followers in the Midwest are mostly satisfied that he's plugging away despite an obvious government conspiracy. But they're not the only ones reading Hartzell's letters home. His incredible success has drawn the attention of the United States Postal Inspection Service. That probably sounds like no big deal, but it is a big deal. The Postal Inspection is the oldest branch of federal law enforcement. Mail fraud, using the U.S. Postal System to solicit funds under fraudulent pretenses, is a federal crime. The Smithsonian's U.S. Postal Museum has made a very exciting video about the Inspection Service, if you care to look it up.
1: There are over 200 federal statutes that apply to the mail. Narcotics. Homicide cases. Child exploitation cases. Prohibited mailing.
0: The Postal Inspection Service has a very high conviction rate. Hartzell is in trouble. What's worse, he's in the sights of an especially tenacious inspector named John Sparks. Sparks is another Midwesterner, and he's determined to stamp out the scam that's bilking so many around him. He and other inspectors visit farms and towns across the region, collecting evidence but they inadvertently stumble upon something much more disturbing than mail fraud.
1: The first thing that the authorities encounter when they start knocking on doors in Iowa and Illinois and Minnesota, is that the response is, we believe in Oscar Hartzell and we don't believe in you. We don't believe in the government. We were warned by Oscar that you'd show up saying this is all not true, but Drake's fortune is our deal. It's not a government deal. You don't want us to have it.
0: Conspiracy thinking is a powerful force. Even still, Hartzell's run of luck appears to be running out. In 1930, he slips up and confesses his scam to a Texan visiting London. The Texan, it turns out, is actually a British private detective with a convincing accent. Scotland Yard also starts monitoring Hartzell. Finally, with the persuasion of the US State Department, the British government deports Hartzell in late 1932. But he's deported in style, riding first class on the ocean liner, the Champlain.
1: He's still posing on the boat as though he's Baron Hartzell. He doesn't really know what awaits him in America. What is awaiting him in America is that John Sparks not being prepared to wait until Hartzell gets off the boat, has actually got a police launch to take him out to the Champlain while it's still in quarantine. Then he goes on the boat and says to Hartzell, you know, I'm John Sparks, postal inspector, you're Oscar Hartzell, did you write this letter? He shows him a letter. Hartzell says, yes. Hartzell realizes he's made a mistake. This is a moment in the story when he is so busted,
0: Sparks had witnesses with him, and they have all seen Oscar Hartzell confess to committing mail fraud. Sparks has been on this case for almost a decade. It's finally his moment of triumph. He brings Hartzell to Sioux City, Iowa. This is where Hartzell will stand trial and the federal government will debunk the Drake scam for good. Or so they think.
1: What meets Oscar Hartzell at the Sioux City Railway Station is a huge crowd of people with banners shouting, we believe in you, Oscar. We know that the government is wrong. We know that they're just trying to interfere with our deal. But we still believe.
0: Hartzell's supporters raised $68,000 for his defense. That's right. The victims are paying the grifters' legal fees. A few months later, the trial gets underway. It's a media circus covered around the country. The federal prosecutor pulls out all the stops. John Sparks testifies. So does the private detective from London, as well as Scotland Yard. The coup de grace is a British legal expert named Charles Shallon, a one-armed veteran of the Great War. He uses his remaining arm in court to hold up an actual copy of Sir Francis Drake's last will and testament.
1: Holds this thing up in court and saying, here it is, here's the actual last will and testament. And guess what? It was probated in due order all those centuries ago. And the whole notion that there may be such a thing as Drake's fortune is absolute, you know, nonsense.
0: Shallon's testimony is buttressed by yet more historians. And here's what Hartzell's lawyer says in response. All history is inaccurate. All history is badly written. In the end, Hartzell is sentenced to 10 years in federal prison, and he's transported to Leavenworth, Kansas. Many Drake investors still refuse to believe it's a scam, or even that Hartzell is truly imprisoned. Hartzell's agents in the Midwest, including his own siblings, go into overdrive collecting more funds to find Drake's gold. John Sparks and the feds double down. They arrest 41 Drake agents and investors. They let most of them go, but a second Drake trial starts in Chicago in 1935. Hartzell is fetched from prison. One of his brothers is among the defendants. And at this point, Rayner thinks something inside of Hartzell snaps.
1: He's hit with the full force of, I've really damaged these people. And that's the moment when Hartzell says, yeah, I'm guilty, take me away. But immediately after that, he starts perhaps pretending to be insane or Perhaps he actually has been driven insane.
0: Hartzell may have actually been driven insane by having told the same lie for so long. Rayner has looked through the files that prison psychiatrists kept on Oscar Hartzell for the next several years. Hartzell claimed to be Sir Francis Drake. He claimed that prison nurses were part of the conspiracy against him. He said his net worth was 53 billion pounds sterling. Hartzell died in a prison hospital in August 1943. His recorded net worth at the time was 10 cents. A Spanish prisoner con artist dying in prison. That's not unheard of. What lingers about Hartzell's saga, though, is the absolute stubborn belief of his
1: investors.
0: Despite all the evidence of fraud, despite Hartzell's own admission of guilt, some never lost faith.
1: They're talking about the utopian society that they're going to build when they get the money, when Hartzell is out of Leavenworth, and he goes to get Drake's fortune.
0: What is going on here? Are these people complete yokels? It's tempting to believe, but I think there's something much deeper going on, and it's with us still. The late, great New York City newspaper columnist Jimmy Breslin wrote a piece in 1990 in which he evoked something he called Quorum's Law. He named it after Bill Quorum, a sports announcer in the mid-20th century.
1: Naturally, I think that the Kentucky Derby is the greatest sports event in the world. But that's a matter of taste. And the same goes for cigarettes. I smoke Lucky's. Because they
0: give me the- Quorum was a Midwesterner, like Hartzell. He came up with the motto of the Kentucky Derby the Run for the Roses. Quorum was eventually asked to manage the Derby. The race had been heavily criticized as a magnet for vice, con, and corruption, but Quorum was delighted with the criticism. Sin and sleaze? That's why people come to the races. When they go back to North Dakota from the Derby with nothing in their pockets, Quorum said, they know they must have had a great time, especially if they can't exactly remember why. This is the rule, Breslin remembers Bill Quorum declaring A sucker has to get screwed. He meant the bigger the swindle, the more magical its power, the more people feel the subversive thrill of being a part of it. That's Quorum's law. In psychology, it's a powerful concept known as dissonance reduction. When you experience strong cognitive dissonance, reality doesn't match expectations or beliefs, you rationalize the discrepancy away. It must have been worth it. You can't have been wrong in your beliefs for so long.
1: It corresponds probably to some need for impulsiveness and recklessness. I do think at the end of the Drake's Fortune story, there's a moment when it becomes about an almost kind of defiant need to believe in the face of authority telling you, your belief is, is bullshit. And if someone says that to you, you wanna say back, you know what? F you, I'm gonna go on believing in, in this because I like Oscar Hartzell more than I like the Wall Street banker
0: if this all sounds like something familiar right now. Well, in Evoking Quorum's Law in 1990, Jimmy Breslin was trying to explain the behavior of a local character named Donald J. Trump. Richard Rayner started on his book, Drake's Fortune, almost two decades ago. He's gone on to write many other books, but people are suddenly asking him about Oscar Hartzell again. The Master of Misrule seems disturbingly relevant.
1: What Drake's Fortune tells us is that reality is indeed a very, very slippery concept. And that part of what the con man always does is to set our feet on the soap bar of that concept and then kind of watch us skid along the floor.
0: Some people keep skidding long after the con man is gone Raynor spoke with a librarian in small-town Minnesota who remembered fist fights over the Drake fortune. A priest had been run out of town for criticizing it. And still, the librarian said, there were a few old-timers who spoke of what they'd do when their share of the fortune finally arrived. If you slide on fantasy long enough, it almost feels like you're going somewhere. The Grift is produced by Odelia Rubin, Shoshi Shmulevitz, and Jacob Smith. Our editor is Julia Barton, and our fact-checker is Jen Schwartz. Ben Levin composed our music. Special thanks to the Panoply management team, Mia Lobel, Laura Mayer, and Andy Bowers.